I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. At your service. Welcome to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline, sponsored by Allen's Tree Service. Now, here's your host, Mike Miller on KMOX. Yes, folks, welcome and thanks for stopping by. We'll be taking the good gardening stroll shortly. If you have any questions or concerns or comments, 314 314- Four three six seven nine hundred or one eight hundred nine two five eleven twenty. Every Saturday morning, we get, we get together to discuss your yard, your landscape, your garden, your house plants, insects, bugs, pruning, diseases, all that other kind of stuff, or just simply weather related problems. So uh, remember, my words are strictly to open opportunities, and certainly not the only garden path to take. There's lots of different ways to get from here to success. And this is a marathon. There's no getting around it. There's no sprinting. It just doesn't happen. You might sprint for one thing, but it's not going to make much difference whatsoever. And this is your show, and I certainly appreciate you being here. And uh, Brian Kroc, he's in here producing today. So I'm Mike Miller, by the way. I've been hosting the Garden Hotline since 1994. I've written five gardening books. Two are currently available in various locations. And also, I write articles for the Missouri Gardener magazine. During the week, I do landscape consulting. If you'd like for me to come to your home and do a walk and talk, go to my website, www.mikemillerdesigns.com. On the homepage, there's an email address and a phone number where I can be reached. Today's Good Gardening Stroll is brought to you by St. Louis Composting, 636-861-3344. Steps off right now. Wow, I stepped out of the door, and it was a cool morning, Ah, low humidity. And as I headed north on 55, I skyline of downtown. And as I pulled off in where I decided to go, well, I'm going to let you try to figure it out. I parked at the uh, park, (laughs) North Park in, no, no, no. I parked at 9th and Lamai. Or Lamy. No, it's Lamb I. I used to live on Lamb I. And I was greeted by black eyed Susans, sunflowers, and lime green benches. Purple comb flowers, milkweed, uh, not showing any color yet, but it will be soon. There's flocks blooming, among other things. And around the, that's all around that corner there. White pine, underneath this nice looking white pine, Liriope, purple palace coral bells, variegated Solomon seal. And as it transitions from the white pine into the full sun, basil, dill, some columbine. There's a peach tree. Yeah, peach tree looks like all the fruit has already been picked. But some apples are there, and they are showing some good, nice, colorful red apples. A garden plot. Yes, there are all kinds of garden plots in this area. And they're divided up, and there's a wood mulch walkway in between all of them. This sh- and basically, each one of these plots, which is a raised bed circumstance, shows the owner's personality. Example, some have marigolds, some have tomatoes, some have squash, some have turnips. Whoa. Some have, uh, there is also a giant coxcomb there watching over some onions. 
As you know, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, I dislike onions. There's lettuce, there's green beans, there's Brussels sprouts. Those have already been harvested as well. The arbor, wow, green beans are growing up the arbor. They got some strings for them to climb up on. And a small sign reads, Sular Garden Co-op. So that's where this is. And it's a membership thing. There's 26 plots. And right below this where the sign is, there's a great pot of thyme growing. So the center garden, a raised bed, a mixture of all kinds of different things. In this area, though, there is some milkweed that is in bloom. Those nice two different tones of red-orange really looking good. And also there's other places where other plots where you're going to see corn growing right next to gladiolas, right next to lavender. Boy, oh, boy, some of these plots have zinnias. They have nasturtiums. They have, and there's an area of blackberries. So that's really kind of cool as well. Several bird baths are scattered throughout, offering oasis to the birds. There's a tree compost bin area, and it's sponsored by Gateway Greening. As I headed back, you know, on Barton, at Barton, towards the car north, spearmint, fennel, opuntia, sedum, ornamental grasses, asters were rocketing up. I could hear a train whistle in the distance. And that train whistle reminded me it's time to get going, time to move on. And the birds chirped, see you later. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline, back after these messages. This is the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline with your host, Mike Miller, on KMOX. You had any rain this last week, but if you didn't, boy, oh boy, it is super dry, so... Take your radio out with you, and uh, as you set up your hoses, make sure your irrigation system's running, and run it for longer periods of time, less often, so the water can penetrate deeply. This past week, on Wednesday, I watered heavily, like I normally do, and uh, then we had pretty good rain on Thursday. I don't know exactly how much rain we got, but it was enough where I'm glad I had rain. Or I, I, I had watered the night before. Because it made the ground soft, so all the rainwater soaked into the soil. That's what's really important. If your ground is hard and you hadn't been raining, I mean you hadn't been watering, consequently when it did rain, a lot of it could just run off the surface because it cannot penetrate into the ground. So that's sort of the advantage of you know, just continuing to water. And water, longer periods of time. That every morning for 15 minutes is useless. That just becomes, it's like morning dew. It doesn't help the plant material at all. Every three or three or four days for longer periods of time. Now, you might have to, you know, work that up so you can get it to, you know, soak into the ground as opposed to just running off the surface. Let's go back and let's go to the phones. Jerry from Florissant is our first caller of the day. Hi, Jerry. Yeah, Mike. How you doing? Very good. Hey, um, my son just bought a house and uh, his front yard is just about all weeds. What kind of program can we start up to get him grass eventually? Uh, basically, I would go out and start killing everything off that's there in preparation for uh, f- like improving the soil with compost. And then in mid to late uh, August, that's when you're going to start getting some grassy down or putting some sod down. And unless he's really very, very patient... I would say, unless the yard is really huge and it's very expensive or whatever, I would do sod versus seed because you're going to have to. He's going to have to overseed every May, every September for several years to get a nice thick lawn. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Okay. 
And uh, yeah, it's uh, his choice of you know what he wants to have. Bluegrass, bluegrass goes very, very dormant in the summertime, but it looks very nice in the wintertime. Zoysia looks very nice in the summertime, and then looks totally brown or tan in the wintertime. And then the fescue, it's kind of it's not in between, but the fescue is also a cool season lawn, just like the bluegrasses. Scott lives in Baldwin. Hi, Scott. Yeah, my question is, I, I caught a snippet of it last week, and I'm just asking you to repeat the uh, thought, and that was regarding the uh, fire blight and the uh, p- uh, pear trees. Yeah, the fire blight is devastating. There's actually a couple of pear trees right down the street from me that are really the only single branches for, like, last year. Now, this year, there's probably, like, the ends of the branches, about 20% or 25% are blackened. So it looks like there's, they've been scorched. It's an internal disease. There's bir- virtually nothing that can be done to reverse it at all. It's just going to be a slow death you know, process. So that's kind of what it's all about. What would you anticipate the average death process of that? How long, you mean? Yeah, a couple years, a couple months. Yeah, it just depends upon how healthy the tree was and everything else. But, uh, you know, there is a couple trees you know, on this same street, Wanda, which is the next street north of where we live. Or I guess east, not north. But uh, some of their, you know, some of them had it, and you know, it's just like it's a very slow process. But the ones I'm speaking of is a little bit further south on Wanda, and they are not looking good. So it just depends upon the individual case, individual circumstance. I've seen them go in like basically once you saw it the next year, then they're virtually aesthetically at least gone. I mean, they may still be alive, but you're not going to enjoy looking at them at all. So what you're saying basically is it'll finish the season and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, it may go on. You may get another couple of years out of it. But it's just, you know, individual circumstance, individual health, and all that kind of stuff is really what's going to make the difference. And repeating again, there's just absolutely nothing you can do. Right, exactly. It's an internal all disease. Right. It's in the veins. And once it's there, it's, you know, it's translocated by various, you know, I mean, even if there's a, let's say, a flowering pear tree close by that has it, and you have another tree that's in somebody else's yard, and the root systems grow on top of each other, I mean, the tree that has the disease can actually transmit it through the root system. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there's well, thank all kinds. Thank you kind very of- much. Uh, is this come out of nowhere, or is this recent, or have I just uh, had my head under the ground or something. No, you haven't had your head under the ground, but it's been around for a long time. When I worked at the Botanical Garden in the, let's say, mid to late 70s and early 80s, that's the first time I ever even heard of it. I didn't see it on the Botanical Garden grounds, but I started seeing it in other places. I didn't know what it was. I just thought, well, you know, there's only a few branches that are brown. Why would that happen? And I knew that it couldn't be wind or anything, you know, related to that. So, and then finally, you know, somebody on the staff, or I forget exactly who it was, we were discussing it, and then they, you know, all of us together probably figured out that it was something called fire blight. Last aspect of that, uh, Bradford Pears had sort of two major outings that I know of. Uh, you know, the first batch was uh, goes back 40 years, uh, being relatively popular, and and then the the species changed about what about eight or ten years ago. Yeah, they it's get, supposed to be healthier. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's it, it makes a little bit of a difference. The original you know flowering pear trees were a little bit rough. What this was was just some you know a hybrid that came out that had you know, let's say more spectacular flowers, better fall color, nicer you know foliage because it is nice. But I mean, 
in reality, if you like them, it's a little bit of a heartache when they die, but you get probably, even in the worst circumstances, unless it's a giant ice storm or something, 15 years of, you know, spectacular shows out of, out of these flowering pear trees. So, you know, it's just, you know, it's just, you know, the difference. I don't say I don't think they even sell the original type of calorie pear anymore. It's only the hybrids, but still they, you know, they're going to have some of the same problems. Thank you so much. Yep. Good luck with that, Scott. And now let's go to, uh, yep, let's go to Edward in Florissant. Hi, Edward. Uh, hello, Mike. This is Mr. Hanrahan. Uh, I've got a pin oak uh, tree in my backyard, a very large tree. And every time I go out to my backyard, I see uh, uh, bunches of leaves and little twigs that fall off the tree. They've got like a gall on uh, on it. it. I don't know what this is. Is it, is it Are the squirrels doing this, or is it a disease, or, or what is that? Can you help me with that? Yeah, the galls are actually you know caused by a, a wasp, not the classic kind of wasp, but the female wasp lays her eggs on the twigs of the oak trees, and it's mainly the red oak group, not the white oak group. And then when those eggs hatch, they cause that bloating, that gall, and it's a protective mechanism. So while there's, let's say, having their childhood before they emerge as an adult, this keeps them protected. So consequently, there's really not a whole lot that can be done. You know, I mean, there's an injection system and things like that, but once your tree has it, the, the galls in and of themselves, unless you've got huge numbers of them, they don't really kill the tree. They aesthetically, they're horrible to look at. Look at, and especially in the wintertime, after the foliage has fallen off, or early spring when the foliage falls off the you know the pin oaks or the red oak group. And there's really not too much you can do. There's, I mean, this is just kind of one of those things. It, it just seems like there's just lots and lots of uh, bunches of leaves that are falling off. Is that is that the tree reacting to these wasps? Well, the, not necessarily, but where the where the actually the gall is, that that point can become weak, and because they're generally near the end of the branches, the winds and everything else we have can knock, you know, can cause those to you know crack and break off. Usually, uh, if it's a squirrel doing it, it's going to be a like a forty five degree cut to the twig, so you can look down at it, and that, it won't necessarily have a gall on it. But it, the squirrels, what they're doing is they're just practicing making nests and you know pruning and doing all this stuff because they're bored, I guess. I don't know exactly what they're doing. But that's kind of what you're looking at. So they're two completely different circumstances. So if you see uh-huh. twigs on the ground and the cut is at like a 45-degree angle, then that's probably squirrel-related. If there's a gall right there at the end, then that's related where you know this particular branch or this twig, the end of it, is no longer functioning right, and the wind, the environment, and everything else is what's knocking them off. Okay, uh, I've got another question. Uh, my wife has uh, peony bushes around the house here, mm-hmm. and certain times of the year, they, they, it looks like somebody sprayed them with white paint. What, what's that? Do you that's, have any idea? Yeah, that's powdery mildew. So what mildew. you need to do? Oh, okay. So it's like a fungus. What you, you know to prevent it? What you have to do is when the foliage is first coming up out of the ground, it kind of looks like a red hand reaching up through the soil. Uh, You start spraying then, and you spray every couple weeks. You go to your favorite garden center and tell them that you have powdery mildew on your peonies, and they will recommend or they will, you know, have you buy of the fungicide best that they have, you know, in stock. And then you're going to have to spray for a couple different times. And then you really, 
you know, it's a preventative type thing. And that's really with all these fungus problems where there's powdery mildew, you know, any of these things, you got to virtually start spraying before you ever see it. That I can get rid of bamboo. <laughs> I've got a lot of it in my yard. <laughs> well, you can go into your favorite garden center and get Roundup for killing woody plants and just start spraying the Roundup on it. I see. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Mike. God bless you and have a good day. Well, you do the very same thing. And let's see if we can get uh, Jody in. Jody from University City. Hi, Jody. Hi. Hi. I was calling regards to my honeydew melon plants. This is my first year to grow them. I have three of them. And I was reading that as they are developing, are you, something about removing some um, blossoms off of it so that it can spend more energy developing uh, fruits. Is that something that I should be doing? Yes, and that's really with anything. I mean, whether it's a peach tree, whether it's honeydew melons, or virtually anything, it's a huge amount of energy for, first of all, for the plants to produce flowers, but second of all, to end up producing fruit as well. So, yes, I mean, pick out, you know, since it's your first year, I would say if you have three that really look good, I'd get rid of all the flowers that are, you know, that's coming and see what, you know, how well these turn out. As opposed to trying to guess, well, maybe I should leave these, maybe I should leave that, or just let's start off with this, then you can use that information for the future years. Okay, you mean start off with three blossoms, or wait until I see the three are starting to develop? You don't have any fruit set at all? No, I'm most surprised. I didn't get them in until May, though. Oh, well, that's probably, you know, that's somewhat of the problem. But, yeah, as soon as you start seeing some fruit, then that's a time when you let that fruit, whether it's a watermelon, whether it's honeydew melon or anything else. And I don't know, you know, I personally, I've never grown honeydew, so I don't know how well they do here. But, uh, good, you know, hopefully you'll have good luck with them. But just let a few of them grow. Don't let, you know, everyone flower that comes out that gets fruit, you know, that gets uh, pollinated, starts setting fruit because the plant's not going to be able to handle that. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Yep. And, you know, I'm not even sure if you're going to be able to get any fruit set, but uh, it okay. certainly is, a, you know, an option or a possibility. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline, back after these messages. Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline with Mike Miller, sponsored by Allen's Tree Service on KMOX. Yes, folks, any questions or comments, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Brian will answer the phone. All he needs is your name and where you're calling from, and that's pretty easy. And then you just hang on, and I just take everybody in order that they come. Fertilizing this time of year, anything that's in flower needs to be fertilized. So whether it's, you know, flocks, whether it's roses, whether it's your vegetables or anything like that, and as well, do not fertilize at all any cool season lawn. Don't fertilize bluegrasses. Don't fertilize fescues, but fertilize zoysias. So there's certain things that you have to, you know, sequence right or else you're going to mess up the whole process of the plant material. But anything that's not in flower yet, but if it's starting to set bud, then you can start flowering that. Like asters or some of the you know plants are going to bloom a little bit later on. Or you can certainly fertilize Rosa Sharon. So they're in bloom right now. Also the crepe myrtle. I think this year has been the best year so far for crepe myrtle. The flowers have been nothing but spectacular. And personally, I like mimosa trees. So mimosa trees... 
my grandmother across the street when I grew up in Maple Lane, she was the first person I ever knew that had a mimosa tree. So that's not the only reason I like them. I like them because they look very tropical. They flower in the summertime when there's really not too much else flowering from a tree standpoint. Yes, there are golden rain trees and a few other things, but not much. Let's go now to Julie, and Julie is in Alton. Hi, Julie. For taking my call. So my question is, I have two big blue spruces in my front yard, mm-hmm. and they were absolutely gorgeous when we bought our house, and now it's like 16 years later. And five to ten feet from the bottom, you know, these branches are getting brown. And I want to bring back how it was so beautiful, and I don't know if I need to fertilize it or what do I need to do to bring them back to, you know, I love the trees for protection and privacy. Right. Basically, once the branches start turning brown on any kind of conifer or really any kind of tree, there's no way to return that to reality, the one that you remember. So there's not too much you can do. A lot of times what happens is the branches higher up in the tree, be it a spruce, be it a pine, be it anything else, uh, overgrow the lower branches. And then so, you know, if they're not getting any sunlight, the tree just simply goes, you're not helping my health overall, so I'm going to compartmentalize you. And that's what kills the lower branches off. I see. So fertilizing isn't going to help. Nothing's going to help. Not really. If you go into the forest, any kind of pine forest or spruce forest, you're going to notice that none of the, I mean, they have trunks with needles way up high. They don't That's really true. have things. We I just need to cut them out. Yeah. Well, you don't need to cut out the brown. Yeah, you don't have to cut them out. But what you might think about doing is get the next generation of trees planted, get them well established before you remove the ones that are kind of aesthetically not as what you really right. want. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Uh-huh. And now let's go to West County and go into Carol's yard. Hi, Carol. Yes, hi, Mike. Um, A couple of weeks ago, you mentioned to some fellow that had uh, grass growing in his flower bed that there's a grass killer that he could spray. I I have Bermuda grass growing in the daylilies that is impossible to get out. Will that kill that Bermuda grass and not? Father's a daylily? No, it won't. Basically because the daylilies are more or less a grass because they grow and they have blades. What I was telling him is if you have broadleaf plants, so in other words, vegetables or perennials that are broadleaf type, so in other words, wider leaves, then you can use the grass killer. But Bermuda is very tough to kill anyway. A lot of times even the normal grass killers won't, you know, sort of get rid of them. There are a few herbicides that are specific, specifically for them and for Bermuda grass, but it's still going to be a long, involved process. It's not going to yeah. happen in one application at all. Okay. Okay. All righty, because it, it seems like if we pull it out, it just comes back. Yeah, because it, you're not getting the entire root system out. What you could do is if you can separate the daylilies from the Bermuda grass, just go out there and use Roundup Concentrate and put it in a jar or a bowl or whatever and just paint the Roundup right onto the Bermuda grass. But still, that's even going to take a couple years of application to finally get rid of it. Okay. All right. Thanks for your help. Yeah, it's a brutal, you know, brutal, <laughs> very brutal grass, very brutal situation. Actually, Charlie, two doors down, Charlie, who lives two doors down from Tracy and I, uh, he's got Bermuda grass and he dug, he probably went down about four or five inches and tried to cut the Bermuda grass out as like pieces of sod. And he, I mean, it is still coming back. He's really, I mean, he's trying to find an herbicide to put on it just specifically to kill the Bermuda. 
And it, he's been battling this stuff for several years. Let's go now uh, to where? Oh, nope. Okay, so nobody's there. But anyway, other things that you need to be thinking about right now is the Japanese beetles. They're really starting to show up. And they're really starting to do some damage to certain plant materials. And if you'd like to have uh, a sort of a quick list on things, Japanese beetles, other than roses, are more likely to attack than other, th- other plant materials. A lot of the, uh, the Japanese maple, the Norway maple, the chestnut trees, the roses, Sharon, you know, Altheas, the hollyhocks, they're going to go after those type things. They're also going to go after some of the elms. They're going to go after the linden trees, sassafras, prune, you know, the prunes and the prunes, the plums, that kind of thing. Now, a list of plant material that is not or less likely for the Japanese beetles to attack. There is box elder, which nobody likes. The, the red maple versus the Japanese maple. I don't know why they don't go for that one. They don't seem to go for the silver maple as well. The Japanese beetles don't go after the boxwood. My guess with the boxwood is just simply because the leaves are so small. But they don't go after, let's say, lilacs either. They don't go after many of the oaks. So there is a a distinctive list on plant material that they're going to go after more often than not. But also there's a list of plants that are going to be less, have a less tendency to be damaged by the Japanese maples. So... Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline. We will be back after these messages. Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Once again, here's Mike Miller on KMOX. Yes, folks, back to the phones we go. And if you do have any questions or comments, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. You can certainly do some pruning on maple trees this time of year. Some trees you do not want to prune during the summertime because of bacteria and fungus and things like that. But other trees don't seem to mind it at all. Also, this time of year with this heat and everything else, if you do have any birch trees, especially river birch, you can start to expect a whole lot of leaves to be dropping off the birch trees. And this year, as far as the sycamores, we live right there on, you know, on Christie Park. And, the, you know, the streets, trees for the park are a lot of sycamores. The size of the trunk increase must have been massive this year. I don't, you know, I consciously I didn't measure them or anything else. But the amount of bark that the sycamore trees have sloughed off has just been absolutely amazing. So there's all kinds of neat things going on in the outdoors. Mary lives in Overland. Mary, how are you today? I'm just fine, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. And I've been a listener to your program for probably as long as you've been giving it. Wow. I've been out of town, so I don't know if this um, issue has been discussed. But I have quite a few hydrangeas. And only one, maybe out of eight, has any uh, blooms at all. And then I looked at them real closely, and one of them just has one little bud that's going to open. I mean, they're established. I haven't trimmed them back over the winter. Have you heard of this problem before? Yeah, there seems to be a lot of them. Now, how old are these? Well, some of them are like 30 years old, but, yeah. but the most recent ones are like five years old. Well, what it could have been, the older ones may be just past their prime as far as flowering goes. There's no getting around it because these are newer hybrids. You can go into old neighborhoods and see hydrangeas that have, you know, that are, are old as a house, basically, and they're still blooming. But as things have been refined as far as blooming, color, or whatever it happens to be, the size of the buds, 
it's made a big difference on their lifespan. So some of the older ones may be that, and the, let's say the younger ones, it may have been just a cold spell, you know, that came out of nowhere one night and just got rid of the, you know, the flower bud potential. I'm I assuming see. these are, you know, these are not like the PG hydrangeas that bloom in the springtime. These are summer blooming type. Yes. Yeah. So, like, there could have been just one night, you know, during the springtime where they were forming the buds, and that was kind of it. And can I ask you one more question, sure. please? Um, I followed what you had said. If I had a terrible yard, which I did, and there was quite an erosion on the slope of the backyard, so I had it completely resodded. They pulled off everything and then resodded it. And this was like in April, and it was beautiful when we started. But now we've got an automatic sprinkler system and run it, you know, continually. And parts of it seem like they're just turning brown in the same places that were so bad when we had it done in the spring. Right. So there's something in those particular areas also, you know, new sod down, I don't know how you're setting up your irrigation system as far as timing, you know, extended periods of time is what's advised, especially for, you know, new sod, but really for any kind of lawn, I'm assuming this is a bluegrass or a fescue lawn. Fescue. Yeah. So, you know, it's just those particular spots, there's something wrong in those spots. You did everything you probably should have or could have. Did you mix compost in with the soil before the yes, sod was laid? the gentleman took, he skimmed off all the grass. Right. And then actually I asked him to put, you know, compost in with uh, prior to um, laying the, each roll aside. Right. So, I mean, everything was done perfectly. But this is the real world, and with our weather and everything else, there's just no way to know. You're never going to have complete success, and especially on a slope where you've had problems in one particular location, there must be something you know that's causing problems there. Do you have trees in your backyard at all? Yes, yeah. we do. So it's probably the trees. They're desperate for moisture. They're desperate for nutrients, and they're giant bullies compared to a little bit, you know, a little grass plant. That makes sense. Okay. Well, I'm sure going to try it. And, Mike, again, thanks for your wonderful program. Well, thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Now let's head out to Valley Park from Overland and go into Ed's yard. Hi, Ed. Good morning. Hi. Uh, I have, at Christmas time, I got two uh, amarillo bulbs, and they we planted them in this uh, foot-long thing that came with it, and um, they uh, flowered beautiful for about um, for about a month right then all of a sudden they have come so droopy that uh, like you think you've watered too much and all that kind of stuff but how how can i get them to strengthen and stand up their leaves up again uh basically you know it's getting kind of i don't want to say near the end of their season but i have some amaryllis that are kind of doing the same thing you're not probably going to i water mine when I water them, I make sure they're thoroughly, you know, dampened as far as the potting mix that they're growing in. But, you know, they're just kind of bending and they're turning a little bit towards the light. So there's really not too much you can do. Just leave them alone as long as they're nice and green. Occasionally take a paper towel that's wet and clean the surface of the leaves off because they probably have dust on them. That can impact them. But you're, all you want to do is keep the leaves, whether they're standing up nice and erect or not, to help build up the bulb for next, you know, for the bloom this, you know, virtually coming up Christmas time or whenever you want to have them bloom. So in other words, you're going to leave the leaves on there all the way up until September. Then you're just going to chop the leaves off 
and just leave them sit, no water, no nothing for a couple months. And then when the new flower bud starts coming up, that's when you start fertilizing and watering again. So you cut off the leaves in September. Right. So you want to have about eight to, you know. How, how, how far down do you cut them all the way to the bulb? Yeah, probably like an inch or two above the bulb. Okay, okay. So I don't have to worry about them now as long as they're green. Yeah, as long as they're green, you're fine. Okay, so that that it'll be they're building themselves up for next year. Right, the bulb will be bigger whether you're conscious of it or not than it was last year when you got it, because that's what the okay. you know basically. Do I need to plant them in a bigger bigger uh, pot or something? No, I don't know what how big the pot that they're in, but you can almost leave this amaryllis bulb in the same pot. You know, as long as it's the bulb has some space around it where there can be some potting mix. So when it's when you water it, when you fertilize it, and everything else, there's something there for it. But putting it into a bigger pot is not going to make any difference. But I keep them wet. Yeah, not so not soaking wet. Just keep them damp. Wait until okay. watch the inside of the pot, and when the the potting mix start shrinking away, and you can see a gap there, then water them thoroughly, and then don't water them again until that gap starts reoccurring. Gotcha. Great. Thank you very much. Well, good You're luck with that. Good job. Yeah, Amaryllis, I, you know, I, personally, I really like them a lot. I, every year I get a couple of them, so we got, you know, I've got to the point now where some of them I'm just sort of like giving <laughs> – Putting them in pots out in the you know out in the alley, hoping people will take them, and some people you know, do recognize them, and they take them because you can only have so much in your own house. So that's kind of what. Uh, thanks, Ed. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, one other one other thing. Uh, the um, Ed, we got to go. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, we, the, if you can give us a call back, or you can hang on. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline. We will be back after the news. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.